Welcome to Telling Future Generations, the radio ministry of Child Evangelism Fellowship of Illinois. Now here's your host, Dr. Katrina Forseth, a missionary serving as state director of CEF of Illinois. Today on Telling Future Generations, we're going to be talking about the subject of completion. In other words, when you finish one task that's your job from God to do, then what? Or what's next? For almost a whole year, Nehemiah had a singular burden, the completion of the Jerusalem wall. From the time that God put the wall burden on Nehemiah's heart to his granted permission from the king to go and his arrival in Jerusalem, and then the building of the wall from start to finish in a mere 52 days, almost a whole year had transpired. Can you imagine from almost sunup to sundown and many sleepless nights in between having one consuming thought, one consuming passion, and that is you need to complete this wall? This was Nehemiah's calling, his God-given mission, together with the people, to complete. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15 is a climatic verse of the first six chapters in the book of Nehemiah, which marks the midway point in the book. It says simply, so the wall was finished in 52 days. You know, that's an amazing feat. For a building project to be completed in that short of a time in less than two months, it's astounding for any building job, whether ancient or modern. But even though it was amazing, it was also anticlimactic. And that's because the first characteristic of what's next for Nehemiah after completing the wall is the silence of celebration. In verse 15, after stating that the Jerusalem wall was rebuilt in 52 days, it's completely silent if Nehemiah and the people broke out in any kind of praise or celebration. We just do not know because the text doesn't say. But what we do see in the next verse is that God gets all the glory. In verse 16, it says, And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. You know, this one verse says it all. For 52 days, the enemies of Jerusalem had given Nehemiah and the people nothing but fits and threats and foul play that flowed from their wicked heart, filled with murderous intent against God's people. But when the enemies of Judea saw the last cinder block laid down and the final wall crack sealed up, they could wag their wayward tongues no longer because they had nothing to say except this work was wrought by God. You know, I have a ministry friend, Bill Allison of Cadre Ministries, who said something years ago that stuck with me. He said, we need to work in such a way that others who know us and even our enemies who hate us can only say, it must be God because it certainly can't be you. And that's exactly what we want others, including our enemies, to say, because then God gets all the glory. So what did Nehemiah say to this backhanded compliment that came from his enemies? Nothing, absolutely nothing, because Nehemiah completely agreed with them that this work was of God and was God's doing from beginning to end. All of us, no matter what work we are engaged in, we should work for God with the same mindset. I love Psalm 115 verse 1, which reminds me that I should be like a two-way mirror that immediately takes any praise offered up from men and reflect it back straight to God where it belongs. The psalmist cries out, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. You and I are made in the image of God, and we are made to reflect him, not us. I wish this next section of what's next for Nehemiah wasn't there, but it is. Right after there's a silence of celebration and God gets all the glory, what's next is that Nehemiah expects more opposition. Some of you listening might say, what? Not again. I thought the enemies were done with all that because Nehemiah's enemies even admitted publicly that God was in this work. 
Yes, they did. But that doesn't mean the enemy is going to just give out a free pass and walk away. No, these arch enemies of Nehemiah, especially this Tobiah guy, along with others, was going to be a thorn in Nehemiah's side for a long time, even to the end of the book. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 17 and 19 says, Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came unto them. For there were many in Judah sworn unto him, because he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Johanan had taken the daughter of Meshalem, the son of Bechariah. Also they reported his good deeds before me, and I uttered my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to put me in fear." It is here in Nehemiah chapter 6 that we have an unveiling behind the curtain. Who are the ones pulling the levers, pushing the buttons, and causing division, discouragement, and even internal disunity from within? It was these inside Jewish people who were aligned and tangled with the arch enemy Tobiah through their mixed marriages that probably involved a lot of money. Let's just do a quick review of Nehemiah by walking down memory lane. In Nehemiah chapter 3, who were the ones that wouldn't lift a finger to help with the wall building work? It was the nobles, the elites who were most likely taking orders not from Nehemiah, but Tobiah. In Nehemiah chapter 4, there was a lot of discouraged and downcast people spreading negative news like, the job's too big for us, we can't do it, or what does it matter anyway? Our enemies will just come up and do a sneak attack and kill us all. We might as well quit and stop building this wall. The text doesn't actually say in Nehemiah 4 who it was that was spreading this discouraging news on continual repeat, but knowing what we know now, this negative talk was probably being spread by these same people who were loyal to Tobiah. But we do know in Nehemiah 5 that it was the nobles that Nehemiah called out and took to task for the unbiblical practice of usury and their debt enslavement against their own Jewish brethren. Then Nehemiah 6, we have slanderous words spoken against Nehemiah and rumors floating around that Nehemiah was setting himself up to be king. And then later, a Jewish prophet was hired and bought off all an attempt to lure Nehemiah to run into the temple to save his life and sin against God. All of this, every bit, was the enemy attacking, not just from without, but the enemy infiltrating and causing internal turmoil from within. Nehemiah knew that there were rats in the house, and even though the wall was finished, that didn't mean his enemies, both from without and from within, were done. Nehemiah expected more opposition yet to come. Now, there's a takeaway here for God's people today. When you're seeking to do God's work God's way, spiritual opposition is not an if question, but when. Spiritual work and spiritual opposition go together because we are in a spiritual war. However, it's important to remember that the most resistant opposition to God's work often comes from within, even among God's people. That's why in John 17, Jesus prayed right before he went to the cross, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. You know, there's a lot of words in these verses, but the key application to highlight is that our work done in oneness not only glorifies God, but shows the world that Jesus is God. In other words, our oneness points to the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is. So if this is true, and it is, then ask yourself this question, why wouldn't the enemy Satan seek to infiltrate and cause opposition from within, especially among God's people? Of course he would. Why? Because internal opposition has the greatest potential to stop the work. It brings dishonor to God and it taints the gospel message, which is our ultimate job from God, our divine mission to show to the watching world that Jesus is who he said he is, that Jesus is God. 
Opposition from within is one of Satan's favorite playbooks, and it's been around for a long time, even from the beginning. In Nehemiah 6, we see three things, the silence of celebration, God gets all the glory, and the expectation of more opposition. But as we turn the page to Nehemiah chapter 7, what's next? We find that Nehemiah is not wandering around, wondering what to do next. He simply gets on with the next task and gets others involved. In Nehemiah 7, verses 1 through 4, it says, Now it came to pass, when the wall was built, and I had set up the doors, and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed, that I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun be hot, and while they stand by let them shut the doors and bar them and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every one in his watch and every one to be over against his house. Now the city was large, Nehemiah said, and great, but the people were few therein and the houses were not built. It is here in Nehemiah chapter 7 that we turn a corner in the book, not to just what's next, but to the next major section in the book. Nehemiah chapters 1 through 6 is all about rebuilding the wall. Chapter 7 is about rebuilding the city. And the last chapters 8 through 13 is about rebuilding the people. Interestingly, in Nehemiah chapter 1, we see all three major building projects mentioned, which were on the heart of Nehemiah, God's servant, to do, rebuilding the wall, the city, and the people, but only in reverse order. Nehemiah's first and foremost burden was the people, and then he inquired about the city, and it was actually his brother Hanani, the same Hanani that is mentioned here in Nehemiah 7, which told Nehemiah way back in the beginning in Nehemiah chapter 1 about the broken down wall and the burnt city gates. So what's the point? The point is that Nehemiah's deepest burden was not the wall or the city, but the people. But in order to rebuild the people and prepare the people for their what's next, which is the first coming of Christ that would occur four centuries later, Nehemiah had to focus on first things first, which was the rebuilding of the wall and the rebuilding of the city. All of that means when Nehemiah finished building the wall, he knew his job wasn't done, but only begun. And for Nehemiah, what's next was to rebuild the city. But there's one major problem. The city was great, the Bible says, but the people were few. Nehemiah knew this wasn't a one-man job. He needed to enlist the help of others, including faithful and God-fearing men like his brother, as well as others. Nehemiah's what's next after the completion of the wall was to get on to the next task by getting others involved. And the whole rest of Nehemiah chapter 7 verses 4 through 73 are all about enlisting, registering others to get them involved in rebuilding the city. But how Nehemiah did it was interesting. Nehemiah gathered together the present people to learn about their past through recorded history. You know, there's a key leadership principle here. If you want to get to know your present people, you need to learn their past, including who they are, their background, and what makes them tick. I remember when I first came to Illinois in February of 2000 to serve as a state director. One of the first things I wanted to do was to understand the present people that served with CEF by learning about their past, who they were, and why they served. I loved hearing their stories or testimonies, how they came to Christ, became connected to CEF, and ended up serving on staff. By learning and even reading about their past, it helped me better understand not only the present people, but also the present work that had been done and yet needed to be done moving forward. 
The rest of Nehemiah 7 from verse 6 through the end of the chapter is all about the present people's past. It's the historical record, the genealogy that Nehemiah found written down that goes all the way back to the first return under Zerubbabel that took place over 90 years before that's recorded in Ezra chapter 2, but also again here in Nehemiah 7. So what's chapter 7 about? It's all about people who lived 90 years ago, who they were, where they were from, and their ministry positions, how they served the Lord. But why was Nehemiah doing research on the present people's past? Because just like 90 years ago, when the people came out of Babylon to return to Jerusalem during the first return, they understood that what they were doing wasn't ultimately about them. It was for their children, the future generations. So in the same way, Nehemiah understood that what he and the people were doing now and rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the city wasn't about them either. It was building for the future, for the children, the future generations. Just this past Christmas, CF received a gift from an unknown donor who had a connection to Child Evangelism Fellowship through their mother, who had recently passed away. After reading their mother's beautiful testimony of a life well lived for the Lord, I noticed that there was an intricate connection to CF that crossed over four generations. There was the daughter who sent the gift in honor of her mother, who was in turn impacted by her mother, which was the daughter's grandmother. But there was also a sister involved who had children of her own, and one of the sister's children had recently served with CEF last summer, teaching Friday clubs as a CEF missionary. So from the grandmother, the mother, and the two daughters who were sisters to the great-grandson, that's four generations connected to CEF. The last few lines of the letter stood out to me that said simply this, Grandmother would be so pleased God answered her prayers for our future generations to carry on spreading his word to the lost. One day soon, this life will be over, and our names, the places we lived, and the positions of how we serve the Lord may be recorded down in a genealogy book or written on a memorial note. But maybe that's it. That's all there is left physically to be remembered by. But the one thing that connects the past to the present and the present to the future is our children. The children are the future, and all we do now, including all of our future what's next that consume our daily life, is not ultimately done for us or is even about us. But as Nehemiah 7 teaches us and the memorial gift clearly states, it's all for our children, the future generations. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you join us again next week as we, as God's people today, build together in all our what's next for the children, the future generations. Thank you for joining us today for Telling Future Generations, the radio ministry of Child Evangelism Fellowship of Illinois. To learn how you can partner with Child Evangelism Fellowship to reach children in your community, please call 309-688-9699 or visit cefofillinois.com. Please join us again next week at the same time for Telling Future Generations. I don't want to forget So please tell me again